Hey, it's great to be with you. Yeah, about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, Freddie asked me if I'd come and share. And I'm not great with topical stuff. I'll just tell you that. I like to be assigned a, a passage of scripture and just go teach the scripture. So we're actually going to read a really long chunk from the Old Testament. I'm going to anchor this talk in an Old Testament story from the book of Daniel. So if you guys have been reading the Bible reading program uh, with us starting in January 1 through the year, you've read the story that we're going to look at tonight, Daniel chapter 1. But this topic of friendship and what kind of friend you are and what uh, Freddie's called the DTR, define the relationship, two parts uh, this week talking about friendship and the best way to get through life is you need men and women in your life. Particularly, I would say brothers, you need other brothers in your life and sisters, you need other sisters in your life. Friendship at that platonic level to help push you forward in every area of life. And then the next time around, uh, moving that more towards the romantic side of your life. Right, Freddie? There you go. It's a critically important topic uh, for many, many reasons. You probably know a bunch of this stuff. Culturally, they are telling us every study that is coming out that loneliness is an epidemic in North America right now, and particularly in your generation because of social media, which you think that seems like a contradiction of terms. We're connected all the time, and you're like, yeah, the point is you're connected through media. So a generation ago, before you had the ability to connect so real-time, live-time, all the time, you had to do real face-to-face -face relationships. And it's not just your generation, but every age group in this day and age that loneliness is one of the number one stats that adults say that they're struggling with. Uh, secondly, the older you get, the more easy it is to become isolated from your friendships. And now, to some degree, that just goes with the course of life. Because in your early years, so think back through your childhood years, most of your time was spent with your peers at school, playing sports, maybe as you started to work, some of the buddies that you worked with, uh, the friends that you met uh, in the neighborhood. But as you get older, you typically grow out of those things. The majority of you, at one point in your life, will likely be married. Now, some of you will choose not to get married, but statistically speaking, the majority of you will one day likely be married. And as you get married, you spend a lot of time with your spouse and with your family, and that is good, and that is right, as it should be. But if we're not intentional, those things can pull away from our strong friendships, and friendships just won't happen. And men, I'll just talk to you, I'm going to talk to you primarily tonight, but men are actually the worst at having friendships. Statistically, they say we are the worst at having friendships. And the older you get, the worst it gets. Uh, two specific reasons. There's lots, but I'll give you two. Number one, men and women build relationships differently. So men tend to build relationships shoulder to shoulder. Working together or playing together, so works and sports, that's a great place to make friendships. So as you're doing something, as you're accomplishing something, you build a relationship. The challenge is you can work side by side, you can play on a sports team side by side, and you can accomplish something but never actually lean into the relationship. Whereas women are a heck of a lot better at doing face-to-face -face relational things conversations, talking it through. So I'll just give you an illustration. My lovely wife is here. Thanks, Carolyn, for coming to support me. My BFF is here, Freddie. <laughs> we worked in church planning for a number of years, and Carolyn spent a lot of time with wives, church planning wives across the country, and she would literally fly into communities and meet with women. And she started out literally booking back-to-back, hour-to-hour-to-hour appointments. And after about two visits, she realized she could not do that, that she had to literally block in three-hour appointments because it took one hour to just get through the chit-chat. 
Then an hour to start to get below the surface. And in hour three, these women really started to open up and they got down into the deep spiritual issues in their life. Men do not do that. Men are done talking like 20 minutes. So men and women are different. Secondly, our culture socializes us differently. It is what it is. You can fight against it. You can talk about it that it isn't and it shouldn't. But boys are taught as little guys to hide their feelings. Don't cry. Whereas girls, it's still allowed to express your emotions. It's acceptable. Small boys have lots of friends when they're little boys, typically. But starting in middle school, those friendships start to diminish. So a report out just a month ago in CNN they said this, this article is entitled, Why Men Don't Have Friends, and reporting two guys or two women, Judy Chu from Stanford University and Dr. Niobe Wei from New York University, they say this, the falling off of friendships between men begins around middle school and late adolescence and grows starker in adulthood. Those who do maintain friendships with other men say that they tend to have lower levels of emotional intimacy than women report. It is what it is. Men just aren't as close relationally. The second line was that boys don't start out emotionally disconnected. They become emotionally disconnected. And I think that back through my childhood, like I had three or four buddies, Brad and Brian Pierce, my two brother friends down the street, they were the close friends. We did everything together. Literally, our summers were spent, it was like 24-7. One of our moms would call the other as long as they knew the three of us were together. But you get older, you grow out of those things. So we're going to come back to that. But I want to start with asking you a question. Think of your life, imagine your life, if you can, 10 years from now, 20 years from 30 years from now. If you can just kind of imagine a decade down the line. So I'll just assume many of you are 20. So when you're 30, when you're 40, if you can possibly imagine when you're 50, where are you going to be? And I don't mean physically the location, where are you going to be, your actual location, but where are you going to be in life? If we took like 15 minutes and said, okay, everybody just go off by yourself with a sheet of paper and in 15 minutes write out everything that you hope and dream is going to be true about your life a decade from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now, what would you write down? Marriage, family, work, education, all the accomplishments and dreams that you've got, your physical health, what you want to be doing with your life. Will you still have hair? Will you have gained 50 pounds? Will you have a family? How many of you are planning already that one day you hope to be divorced? What about your spiritual life? Will you still be walking with God 15 years from now? Assuming you're walking with God today, will you still be walking with God 15 years from now? And will you be walking faithfully with the Lord until the day you die? One of the things I love about Northview, it's a multi-generational church. We got literally newborns to the oldest member I know is 98 years old. He sits Saturday night faithfully right over there in that back section. Newborns to 98-year-olds. I love this multi-generational family. The question is, are you going to finish well as you age? And if you aspire to finish well, what plans and goals and structures are you putting in your life? So I got this report in front of me. came out two years ago, 1920, uh, 2020, 1920, 
2020, it's called The Great Opportunity, an organization called Pine Tops, a whole bunch of Christian organizations got together, raised some money. They did a massive survey across North America on the life of the church in 2050. What are they projecting in the next 30 years? And there's a lot of great stuff in here. But one of the things that they're saying from their research is that on average today, there are 1 million young adults who are leaving the church every year in North America. So if that carries on over the next 30 years, they estimate 35 million young adults who were raised as little kids in the church will leave the church. The fastest growing religious demographic in Canada these days are the nuns and the duns. People who used to have a religious faith or who say they have no religious faith whatsoever. Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Aldergrove, Mission, the Fraser Valley. It used to be called the Bible Belt. It is no longer a Bible Belt. The majority of people in our communities do not claim to have a Christian faith or any association with any local church. And then Jesus gave us some stern warnings about the end times. Just throw a few of these up there. How many will fall away? Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, the broad road. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those are Jesus' words. Few are going to find the road to life. And in the end, he talks about the persecution, the heat in the end times, getting hot, and how many people who claimed to be Christians will actually fall away from the faith. In Matthew 24, he says, Because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I'm sure none of you ever were. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, listen to this last line. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You like you read that whole terrible list and you're like, how could they possibly have the appearance of godliness? But they deny its power. And then add on top of that our cultural moment. So those of you who attend Northview will have seen this slide before. I've used it many times on the weekends, but this is just a cultural analysis of where we have been in the last 30, 40 years and where we are headed. So on the left-hand side of that screen is culture, say like 20 years ago, that the Christian majority were those bottom three lines. Convictional Christians, congregational Christians, and cultural Christians. That whether you were truly a Christian or not, our culture affirmed Christian values. So all the, take, take the Ten Commandments or whatever. The culture, whether they believed it or not, would at least nod the head to it. And if you're involved in the church, that's a good thing. But not so much anymore. Those streams are dividing, and now the mainstream is moving away from the church, and we're trapped as convictional Christians on the other side of this island. Now, it gives us a lot of opportunity, but this is the moment that we live in. So, here's the question I want to put in front of you tonight. How are you going to persevere in your faith? Will you be one who walks faithfully with the Lord to the end of your days, and how are you going to persevere? Well, number one, I would say to you, uh, you can't do it alone, obviously, and ultimately, we would understand the scriptures to say, it's not actually entirely up to you anyway. It's the Lord's work in you. And the Lord has promised if he began a good work in you, Philippians says this, he will carry it out to completion. The Lord is more concerned about finishing the work in your life than even you are yourself. So you've got the Lord on your side. That's a good thing. 
But secondly, we're also admonished that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we would keep the faith, that we would hold it fast, that we would run with endurance the race that is set in front of us. So the question is, whatever your dreams and your aspirations are, they will not just happen. You've got to work at it from a human point of view. And so what are the tools and the practices and the habits that you can put in your life? And there's a lot of them. You could rattle them off. Consistent engagement with the Word of God. I, I hope that all of you have take, picking, picked up that challenge to read with the rest of the church through the Bible this year. If you've never done it, it's a great exercise to get through all 66 books in one year. And you can do it in like 20 minutes a day, just faithfully reading three, four chapters. You can get through the entire Bible. Putting yourself in situations where you have to rely upon God, like going on a mission trip. I hope a bunch of you are going to Newfoundland in April with Freddie. It's a great experience to go out and serve and come alongside others. Put, your place, put yourself in a place where you are stretched, serving and leading and praying and giving. But for tonight, I want to give one key area of focus, and it is the role of Christian friendship. So it might, might be the Bible, might be serving, might be praying, but here's the big idea. You will not survive spiritually if you walk this journey alone. That's what I want to say to you. I'm old enough to be all of your parents. I'm older than most of your parents, actually. And I've lived long enough to say this categorically that I believe it is true. You will not survive spiritually if you try this journey alone. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. In Proverbs 27, this great challenge says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And you could say one woman sharpens another, or one person sharpens another. But as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, you know some of this already inherently. The very fact that you're here tonight tells me that you know that you need Christian friendship. You need Christian fellowship in your life. It's a good reason to be involved in things like NYA. Uh, you may have come simply because your friends dragged you here. Because somebody invited you. Or maybe you're looking for friends. Or let's be honest, maybe you're looking for a spouse. There's no better place to look. Like, just be honest about it. There's no better place to look than going to a Christian gathering of young adults. You want to find a godly young man or a godly young woman? Then go to a good church. But it also could be that you're simply here to just fill this time in your social calendar. You are bored. You could sit at home, or you could come to some event like this. And the question is, do you actually see the value in Christian fellowship as something that you must build intentionally? And who is it in your life that is going to help you and keep you on track? So you could do the Sunday School Answers. You could say, Jesus, and that's true. Yes and amen. You could say the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. Jesus did not leave us alone. You could talk about the Word of God. Of course. I remember so well, and Freddie, your book, study, like this is a topic that never goes away. So when I was a kid, like five years ago, in our youth group down in Oregon, our youth pastor was given a challenge on sexual purity. And he challenged us with Psalm 119 where it asks and answers a very important question. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man, a young woman, how can any person keep their way pure? Well, the answer is right there. By guarding it according to your word with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I don't know if you've heard this line. It was a famous line when I was a kid growing up. But guys would hold up the Bible and say, this book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. 
It goes both ways. So you want to walk in purity? Fill your life. Saturate your life by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. But beyond those important three, Jesus and the Spirit and the Word, let me ask you who are the people in your life, the friendships that will challenge you. People who will call you on your crap. Not just nosy people who are sticking their nose in uninvited, but brothers or sisters that you have actually invited and that you have said to them, I need you in my life. I can't do this alone, and I am asking you to help me, walk with me, speak into my life. Any of you who have worked out in sports know that a workout buddy makes all the difference in the world. It is why most teams train in teams, the whole idea of the positive peer pressure, and and even in so-called solo sports. So you're training for a marathon, which you are going to run all alone. Those 26 miles, no one is running with you as a team. You're doing it as a lone. But the best accountability in that training is to know that you've got a buddy who is going to meet you at 5.30 a.m. out of the track, whether it is raining or cold or snowy or dark. He's going to be there, so you drag your butt out of bed because you know your buddy's there. And it's the only reason that you stay accountability to your fitness. Ecclesiastes 4 says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another one to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how will one keep warm alone? Okay, that's a little funky, but anyway, just think it through. There's a good analogy there. You've been camping or whatever. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... All by yourself, you prevailed against. Two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's a passage that's used a lot at marriage ceremonies. As they talk about a threefold cord, a husband and a wife, and the third cord is Christ himself, wrapping it and binding it together. But it equally applies, this context is rather about friendships, not marriage. And maybe you've heard that line, teamwork makes the dream work. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, you've probably seen this stuff as kids growing up. Horses, those draft horses, those famous, uh, dang, what's the name? Clydesdales, the big guys, like 2,000-pound horses and how much weight they can carry. So you probably know this. One of those draft horses can pull 6,000 pounds, three tons by themselves. But you yoke them together, and how much can two of them pull? Anybody know? If one pulls 6,000, how much does two pull? You think 12, double it. No. If you put two together, they can actually pull 18,000 pounds. It's amazing. Two together can pull three times as much as one alone. Or you've seen the geese flying, the famous V formation. People who study that tell us they can fly 70% further than if they travel alone. Because that head goose is bucking the wind and they keep taking turns. Or, you want to make it just practical, those of you who are into cycling, road cycling teams increase their distance and strength by a minimally 30%. I remember doing this, so I'm way too old to be trying these things. But four or five years ago, went on a 200K bike ride. I should have never done it. I was too old and fat and out of shape. 
And we were coming back from Salmon Arm down the Falkland Valley, and that valley is famous for its winds, and we were bucking a headwind. But my buddy who I was biking with, who's older than I am, but bigger and buffer than I am, he's like 6'2", he's still pretty jacked, and he's in really good shape. He took the lead, and I tucked in behind him, and I'll tell you, it's the only way I survived going down that Falkland Valley, because this big guy in front of me, like this giant sail, broke the wind for me, yeah, he was breaking wind too. But anyway, he broke the wind for me so that I could make it. Anyway, look at the great leaders of history. Some of the greatest encouragements that I've got in my life is reading great biographies. Biographies of great spiritual leaders, church leaders, political leaders, military leaders, and asking the question, how did these people accomplish so much in just one life? And inevitably, as you read the biography of your favorite leader, you'll see that they did not do it alone, that every great leader had a team of people behind them. So let me put some pics on the screen. William Wilberforce, a name you may or may not know. Do you know who he is? The father of abolition. 200 years ago in England, he was responsible, many would say solely responsible for the abolition of the slave trade in the UK. But his buddy, William Pitt who was prime minister and was his best friend, helped push through that legislation. But it wasn't just those two. There was a whole group around them called the Clapham Sect. It was over 20 individuals who rallied around them, men and women, like Hannah Moore and Henry and Marianne Thornton and Charles Simeon and John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, who stood behind these guys to make it happen. And if you have not seen the movie Amazing Grace, it's 20 years old now, so some of you weren't even born when this movie came out. If you've not seen this movie, look it up and watch it. It is an amazing movie. Think of Frodo Baggins. Where would Frodo have been without Sam and Mary and Pippin? And ultimately, where would he have been without the whole fellowship, the nine of them, Gandalf, Aragorn, etc.? And so I'll just say it to you as well. If you've not seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, shame on you. You should watch this all 12 hours of the extended version. Jim Elliott. Does anyone know the name Jim Elliott? Generation ago, a radical effect on the church is Jim Elliott and four of his buddies died in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956, taking the gospel to a remote tribe. And it captured a generation of people's attention and literally catapulted a whole generation of young adults into missionary service as a response. Now, we think of Jim as the key leader of that team, and he was. But there were four other men and their wives and their children who followed along. Nate Saint, Roger Yodarian, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming. And so I'll throw another movie up. If you have not seen this movie, which is just a few years old, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, you owe it to yourself to look up that movie and watch it, and you will be inspired. Billy Graham, you have to know that name, the greatest evangelist, last generation. There's nobody like him today. But back in 1948, he pulls together five of his buddies, he and four others, Modesto, California, and he says, guys, I want you to go off by yourself, and at the end of the day, we're going to come back together, and what I want you to do is write down everything that you think would destroy this ministry, and then we are going to fight it. And he said, you can imagine they came back with the same list that every generation has come back with. Money, sex, popularity, pride, and second or fourthly, not being tied to a local church. And they made this manifesto, they called it. They wrote it down, they signed it, and they said, we are going to hold one another accountable. Now, that team ebbed and flowed over the years. Members came and went, but there were four or five guys at the core of that team that literally served side by side for over 50 years. 
holding each other accountable. So we think of Billy Graham, but all the guys who were in his back pocket. So many examples in the Bible. So I mentioned that. If you're reading, we're reading in Daniel. And I'm going to read a whole long chunk of it. Freddie, you, you gave me 50 minutes, so relax, okay? Yeah. You read some of this earlier in the week if you're reading with us. 20 verses. It's long, but it's all one great story. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility, youths, now this is you guys, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and waters to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and tested them for ten days. In, at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, the original vegetarians. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them he found none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Okay, long text. And there's a ton of stuff in there. But my key thought is this, as I look at these young men. They knew that if they were going to survive in this hostile culture, that they needed each other and they needed the Lord. And you see, they could have gone a couple different directions entirely. And probably nobody would have blamed them. First of all, they could have just simply packed it in, spiritually speaking. They could have just said, you know what, we are prisoners of war. We are literally have been dragged out of our homeland 900 miles across the desert. We are a long way from home. We are under foreign power and domination. God has obviously forgotten about us. And so when in Babylon, let's just do like the Babylonians. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. 
Why even bother? Let's just fall in line and do what we're told, head down. We're already in deep crap anyway. They could have just given up the fight. Secondly, they could have come at it differently. They could have relied on their own strength. Because if you look at the details in the text, it tells us they came from influential families. They came from the nobility, from political leadership. This was like you came from the Trudeau family. Or you came from the Kennedy family dynasty, one of those family stories. And so if we play our cards right, we can move forward. We can gain power. Our family's important. We should be able to pull a few strings here. They were smart. They were strong. They were good looking. They were being offered the best education in the land. They were given a three-year full-ride scholarship. But instead... These young men stood against the cultural powers of the day. And my question as I read that story is, where did these guys come from? Where did four godly young men like this come from in a time of national crisis? And what shaped them before they got to Babylon? And and of course you can say, well, it was God's sovereign hand. It's the Spirit of God. Of course it was. But what else? What did God use in their lives? And in order to understand that, you've got to dig a little deeper below the surface. And thankfully, the scripture gives us some details. So chapter 1, verse 1, gives us this time stamp. It says, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, and that's really important because now it gives us an ability to put it into a calendar and to look at what was happening in the culture around it. So these young men, we figure it out, are likely in their late teens, Or maybe, at the most, their early 20s. They were the age of most of you in this room. How do you know that? Well, the text tells us they were young, they were strong, they were good-looking. And we all know that if you get past 25, no one ever says those things about you. Right, Freddie? Stops at age 24. But specifically, at the end of the text, it gives us this note. Daniel lives to see the day of Cyrus. Well, Cyrus didn't come for another 70 years. So if Daniel's still alive when Cyrus is alive, he has to be in his 80s or 90s, which makes him in his late teens or his 20s. So let's just say these guys are 19 years old. Let's just call it that. So they're deported when they're young adults. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, who was a terrible king, he did evil deeds and God judges the nation. But who preceded Jehoiakim? His father was a guy named Josiah. Do you remember his name? The king, the boy king, Josiah. They're just 19 years old when they arrive in Babylon. So the first 16 years of their life, three years of Jehoiakim, 16 years, Josiah is reigning in in Babylon. So now just take it one layer deeper. I love this history stuff. 2 Chronicles 34 gives us the details of Josiah's life. His dad dies when he's a child, and he takes the throne at eight years old, but he's under governors. So the governors are really ruling while this boy grows up. And then at age 16, he finally gets to begin making decisions. He follows two horrible leaders, Manasseh, who reigned for over 50 years and is recorded as the worst king in Israel's history, period. He openly embraced embraced every form of idol worship, sexual immorality, pagan gods. He literally brought, brought a statue of the god Molech into the temple of Yahweh and told people to worship Molech. 2 Chronicles 33 says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray. 
to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Israel became more wicked than all the nations that preceded them. So Manasseh, when he dies, his son Ammon takes the reign, and he's a horrible king as well. He's an evil man, and he's assassinated. And then his son Josiah takes the, the throne at age eight. Now, just a little, another little tidbit there, which is interesting. This guy dies when he's 24 years old, and he has an eight-year-old son to take the throne. You're like, hmm, how many 24-year-olds have eight-year-old kids? That means he fathered that child when he was 16. So what 16-year-old kid has a son? And you would put the math together on the story, and you'd say, well, the son of a king who has openly embraced sexual immorality and all things are fair game. That's who has a son at age 16. So Josiah is 8. 16 years old, he starts to seek the Lord. By age 20, he's working on spiritual reforms. He's tearing down all the idols. By age 26, he begins a national reform and restoration of the temple. And in the 18th year of a 31-year reign, you do the math on it, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now toddlers. They're two or three years old as these revivals in the nation are starting. And so they grow up during a time of national renewal. And they come from leadership homes, from priests and leaders and influencers. So in other words, families who would have been in the know. So all of that to say, all that history, that these young men are forged in the fires of national revival and renewal and also in national tragedy and defeat. And they had a decision to make. Darkness has overtaken the land. Sauron, the dark lord, has taken the world captive. That's the metaphor Tolkien was pointing to. The all-seeing eye of Nebuchadnezzar, in this case, is amassing his power. And these young men had a choice to make. That either they would stand together and fight against evil, or they would pack it in and join evil. And so we know the story. We read it. They refused the king's food. Later, they refused to bow down and worship. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. Later yet, Daniel won't pray to the statue of the king. He gets thrown in the lion's den. All those Sunday school stories that many of you remember. Were these guys extraordinary spiritual, super saints, somehow set apart by God in a special way? Or can all of us aspire to follow in the steps of these young men? Let me remind you of some of those other leaders that we talked about before, just a couple of them. William Wilberforce was 21 years old when he went to Parliament. That's the youngest you could be in British Parliament in the day. 21 years old when he began that battle. His buddy, William Pitt, was only 24, the youngest prime minister ever in U UK history. Still to this day, two young men, not much younger than most of you, who some would say single-handedly turned that nation around. Jim Elliott and his buddies, I always think of them as old because they come from my parents' generation. So like your grandparents' generation, if they were still alive and they could still be alive today, they would all be in their 90s. My mom's still alive. She's 91. This is her generation. And so I think of them as old men, but the truth is they were all young men when they answered God's call on their life. 
Jim Elliott, who was the leader, was only 24 years old when he first left North America to go to Ecuador. And he was only 28 when he was speared to death. And those other four men, Pete Fleming was 27. Ed McCauley was 28. Roger Yodarian was 31. And Nate Saint was the oldest guy in the gang, and he was only 32 years old. They were young men. So I got to land the plane, right, Freddie? A few thoughts on friendship. Let me go back to the initial question. Are you going to persevere in your faith? Will you be one who walks faithfully with the Lord right up to the end of your days? And how are you going to accomplish that? And remember that big idea that I gave you at the beginning, that you will not survive spiritually if you try to walk this journey alone. It cannot be done. And so one of the key factors in our spiritual journey are the friendships that we cultivate for good or for bad. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, a verse that my mom used to give me when I was a kid. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You get it. Peer pressure that can drag you down. But on the other side, Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. If you have ever seen a an axe being sharpened on a grindstone, you know precisely what this imagery looks like, and you know that sharpening of iron, a lot of sparks can fly. And there's, I've got a memory in my head from, I'm a little kid, I'm thinking back, I had to have been like, because of where we were living at the time, six or seven years old. And my dad, for whatever reason, is sharpening an axe. We must have been going camping, and he's going to cho chop wood, whatever it was. So we go into the workshop, attached to our garage, dad's got the axe, he's got the grindstone, he revs the thing up, and then he applies the axe to that grindstone, and a just spray of sparks go off that grindstone. And as a little kid, I can still remember it in my head, literally jumping back in fear. It freaked me out. And my dad just is casually there, pressing away. And so I learned, oh, this is how it happens. This is how that axe gets sharpened, and if the axe is going to get sharpened, the sparks are going to fly. So earlier in Proverbs 27, it says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You see, if you're going to have a faithful friend in your life who iron is going to sharpen iron, there may be some time that both of you, in both directions, need to share some hard words. And even some sparks might fly. But that's what happens as you sharpen one another. So who's going to sharpen you spiritually? Three obvious things that will help you. Number one, obviously, a solid Bible-teaching church, a no-compromising local church where you serve, where you grow, where you can learn to obey God's word, where you are equipped and sent out to make an impact like salt and light. You've got to have a good church, number one. Secondly, your life partner, your choice of your husband or your wife, the number one relationship that will either make or break your spiritual life. It has to be second only to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The most important decision you will ever make in your life is your choice of your life partner. And above anything else you are asking, you should be asking the question, will this person push me deeper and further in my walk with God? Will this person that I'm committing myself to be linked for the rest of my lifetime to, will they drive me toward the Lord and toward the church and toward the word? Or will they distract me? Or at worst, will they actually oppose me? And I can tell you categorically, categorically, that I would not be the man that I am today without my wife. 
sitting right there supporting me. She has done that faithfully for 30, almost 36 years. Her partnership, pushing me forward, praying for me, her support, and her 100% devotion to Jesus Christ. I know, there are days I know this, she loves Jesus more than I love Jesus. She reads her Bible more than I read my Bible. She pushes me forward. But third, and to our topic today, who's your fellowship of the ring, band of brothers? Who's your traveling companions, your friends, your circle of comrades? You won't survive alone. If you look at the nature shows, and I'm sure you all have, animals who are on the hunt, the lions, the tigers, the hyenas, whoever they are, they're out hunting, and they get a herd of wildebeest or antelopes or whatever it is, and the strategy is what? Chase that herd and hopefully get one unfortunate victim away from the pack alone, and if they can get that one isolated and alone, it becomes an easy target, and soon it becomes lunch. And when you think about this, you will be honest to say that most of your stupid decisions were done in isolation. Most of your worst choices were in the dark, no one speaking into your life, no one giving you counsel, no one there to hold you back from jumping off the deep end of stupidity. And that's why the Bible gives so many admonitions, don't forsake the gathering of the believers. And that's so much more than just NYA or church service. But it's who's praying for you, who's asking you the hard questions. And so will you actually take the time to get and know and love and care and serve? And one of the simplest ways, so just give you one takeaway, grab some buddies, grab some girlfriends, and ask the simple question, tell me your story, and then listen. I remember, I still remember it as though it were yesterday, and it was a long time ago. I was 20 years old, riding in a six-hour car ride with five buddies, driving from Karenport, Saskatchewan, to Calgary, Alberta, six hours in the road. And a guy in the back seat said, guys, we're together for six hours, and by the time we get to Calgary, I want to hear all of your stories. And I don't want to just hear the short version. I want each of us to take at least 30 minutes, and I want to know everything about you. I want to know where you grew up, about your family, your folks, your siblings, your school, your sports life, every job you've ever worked. And most important, what I want to hear is why did you decide to place your faith in Jesus Christ? And what is he doing in your life today? I had never, ever been in a conversation like that before in my life. And I still remember it to this day as one by one, around the car, driving forward, because men build relationships doing stuff, right? We're on a road trip. And we're talking. And each guy took 20 or 30 minutes to unpack their story. If you did nothing else, grab some friends and go, you know what, tell me what God's done in your life. So I'm encouraged that you're here. I'm always encouraged when I see young adults in church that God's raising the next generation. The warning of Scripture is stark and clear. The road is narrow. In the end times, a lot of people are going to fall away. And Jesus calls us to a countercultural way of living. And if I ask you again to say, projected out 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, I can guarantee you that the key to those godly dreams that you write down are rooted in the word and in biblical fellowship and friendship and community and that you won't survive if you try to go it alone. So what I want to challenge you is that you don't wait for somebody to come to you. 
but you for another's eternal good. That phrase that Freddie used, for someone's eternal good, that you'd take the first step. And you'd say something like, guys, I need some people in my life that are going to help me persevere because I want to finish well. I want to be that kind of friend, and I need those kind of friends in my life. Iron sharpens iron. Will you commit yourself to be that kind of friend? Let me pray for you. Jesus, thanks for these young men and women. I thank you, first of all, for their, their being here tonight, and I thank you for your call on their life. They would not be in this room if you weren't doing something in their life. So some of them can share the stories of from the earliest of their years, have no memories even outside of a Christian community because they had a mom and dad who from the earliest years brought them into Christian community. Others, it might be something new. And there may be a few here who it's completely brand new, never been engaged in the life of a church. But Father, by the very fact they're here, we know that you're working in their lives. And so Lord, I thank you for that. But Father, my greatest aspiration is I'm much older than they are and I will be long dead, statistically speaking, when, when by the time they're my age, I'm going to be dead. And God, I would hope and pray that every man and woman in this room would be walking faithfully with you. That they would find the narrow road. That they would stick to it. They, they would, by relying upon your Holy Spirit and your written word and the fellowship of brothers and sisters in their life, that they would finish their course well. May you pour out that blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen.